Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Let's give our attention tonight to the reading of God's Word. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's Word. You know, I used to condescend to clergy types, sort of like myself, thing that they called a ministry of presence. You ever heard anybody talk that way? Uh, when someone starts hurting or someone's going through something, people will say, well, let's just go over there. We may not have anything to say. We may not know what to sort of encourage them with, but we're just going to exercise a ministry of presence. And I used to think, what in the world is that about? What does it mean? What help could there possibly be in just being with somebody? I used to think that until I began to experience some things while I've been here at Ole Miss that, to be quite frank with you, have been just soul-crushing tragedies. I'll be honest with you, in the eight and a half years that Ginger and I have been here, we have seen some things that have represented earth-shattering heartbreak for people. Just this summer, I got a chance to do a wedding for a friend of mine who went through just such an experience. And it was interesting at his rehearsal dinner, everyone standing up and talking about that particular event in his life. And every one of his friends said the same thing. And that same thing was not the insights they gained through that experience. What they said was, there was nothing like us being together. There was a magic almost, as it were, to them coming together and something happening there that was big. I think that's what we're getting ready to learn in the passage we're looking at tonight. And I want you to see three things as we understand a ministry of presence that quite honestly is bigger than any of us might imagine. And that is a ministry of presence that comes in the presence of Jesus Himself. 
Three things tonight I want to draw your attention to. First of all, I want you to see John's two audiences. I want to see if we can glean two impressions from his uh, teaching and his description of Jesus. And then finally, we'll see if we can come up with two lessons about the teaching. That's there at the bottom of your handout there tonight. First of all, two audiences. We have to look before we understand really the whole book of Revelation. Who is John speaking to? Well, there's two groups we'll actually find out. We'll hear a whole lot more about this in the... uh, in the upcoming two weeks. But the first group that John speaks to is a group of people for whom Christianity has really just stopped working. Life has gotten hard. As a matter of fact, life has gotten awful. A large majority of the people to whom John is writing are going through the same kinds of earth-shattering tragedy that people in this room have been through themselves. They are broken people. And John is simply trying to say to them, I've been through that too. Look at his situation here. He's suffering. The people he pastored were, were going through a tribulation. I'm yours in the tribulation, he says. He's on Patmos, presumably in exile, away from all of his loved ones. And then finally we find out that he's there on account of the Word of God. In other words, he's there because he's wrongfully accused. It's not just acts of nature that have brought him there. It's literal injustice that has landed him in the place in which he is. And so John is basically writing to a people who had encountered, them, who had encountered situations in life to where if you had approached them during this time, you would have been so awkward you wouldn't have known what to say to them. So broken had their lives become. That's the first audience. The second audience are different. The second audience are people for whom, quite honestly, it's not that Christianity had stopped working. It's just that Christianity had stopped being interesting. In other words, he's talking to a people for whom spiritual life has just grown so stale. To be honest with you, in my opinion, I think he describes much of some of the spiritual tenor that you see day in and day out on this very campus. So much of what I overhear about spiritual life on this campus can be described in such tepid terms. It's not that people necessarily disagree with Jesus or have some big objection to Jesus. He just bores you. There's nothing that you found in Him that would cause you to be interested in what He is. And typically, for those who care enough to try, they assume that what they really need is more theological data, perhaps. Some people think that what they need is more self-discipline. I need to read my Bible more, people think. Never actually stopping to ask the question that the problem is not wanting to read the Bible, is it not? Some people are looking for a big moving experience, you know? Some earth-shattering bolt of lightning where God finally wakes me up from my slumbers. Either way... Whether you find yourself here as suffering terribly or just living lifelessly, John's message is for you. Because John assumes that both groups need one thing. And that is a fresh vision of the risen and sovereign Jesus Christ. For both groups, this is what you need to see. It's very interesting that there's not one place in any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where you get a physical description of Jesus. Has anybody ever noticed that? (laughs) Do you find that odd? For someone whom everybody claimed was their Lord and Savior, nobody ever said anything of what He looked like. In the Bible, you really get mainly one place where you get a physical description of Jesus, and it's right here. 
Right here. Clearly, John is wanting to give us not necessarily a theological discourse on who Jesus is, but he's giving us a picture book. And as he draws these pictures for us, he comes and I think intends to give us two impressions. Which brings me to the second point. Two impressions John wants us to get from this description. But before we get to those impressions, we've got to deal with these fantastic images here. Because John, in his little picture book that he's drawing for us, is not doing what we would call representational art. Do you know what I mean by that? Representational art is what you might call sort of obvious art. You know, let's say you have a picture of a tree and it looks, go figure, like a tree. That's representational art. It sort of looks like what you're describing. But see, John is not painting that way. John is painting much more of an impressionistic picture. A much more abstract picture for us. I never really had any appreciation for abstraction. But I took what I thought was a great leap about a year and a half ago. And uh, I was touring actually the Museum of Modern Art in New York City uh, with Justin Phillips. And are you ever gone past? If you're out there in podcast land, Justin, we love you. Um, but Justin and I were walking through the Museum of Modern Art there in Midtown in New York City on a missions trip that we take to um, New York with RUF. And so we go over MoMA, if you're sort of a hipster New Yorker, right? We're walking through the exhibit and we come across a picture. And I'm not exaggerating this at all. It's probably about as big as this sort of back platform here. Huge thing. And I can describe it to you very easily because it was white. It was white. That's it. I just described you the whole picture. It was, it was just white. There was, there was nothing on it. Okay? And literally, we had seen all kinds of bizarre stuff that day. But suddenly, when you come to like a white box, we walked up and we were like, oh, come on. <laughs> I mean, please, you've got to be kidding me. And we sat there for a little while in the middle of the Museum of Modern Art in front of these very sophisticated New Yorkers and made fun of this white picture because it just looked ridiculous. Later on, after a couple days after that, I was talking about this very picture to another friend of ours in New York who actually said, oh, you're talking about the white picture, aren't you? And I was like, well, yeah, it looked pretty ridiculous to us. And she was like, yeah, but there was a way you're supposed to look at it. Did you read the little sign? No, we didn't read the sign. We just made fun of it. She said, yep, yeah, if you actually stand there and look at the picture and then you slowly move to your side and look at it, the whites actually change color because of the grain of the painting on the actual canvas. In other words, it was meant to give you an impression of how perspective change when you see something just as simple as a white box. And suddenly, when you begin to look at the painting that way, it would take on brand new life. I know for some of you are going, yeah, but it's still a white box. And that's okay. But there was something about the explanation that helped walk you through that, that helped all of a sudden bring new life to the picture. And I feel like that's exactly what you're going to experience as you're going through this book. You're going to see fantastic images, impressionistic images that are bizarre in many cases. And you need to have a guide. And guess what? The guide is not me. I'm not your sort of, you know, magical mystery man up here painting these for you. I simply want you to learn to trust the Bible as your guide. 
In other words, like we said last week, we're not going to take these images on face value. Rather, we're going to go see how these images were used in other places in the Bible to see what they meant there. Okay? A little bit of preface. So what is it that John actually sees, right? Okay, he comes in first of all and he sees seven golden lampstands. Now, you're going to learn to love it when the book of Revelation actually tells you what it is that the symbols mean. Because it says that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And he lists those seven churches there of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon. We'll talk much more about that in the next two weeks. But let me stop right there because this seems to me as good a time as any to introduce to you the importance of numbers in the book of Revelation. This is one thing we got to get down right now. You have to understand that numbers in the book of Revelation are better stated numbers to the Jewish mind to a Jewish sort of uh, way of looking at the world, were more than just sort of helpful, useful tools for counting, like we use them. Numbers to the Jewish mind actually meant something. They, they signified, they had an impression that they were supposed to make on you. For instance, the number three in the Jewish mind is a number of perfection. It suggests completion. The number four you'll find, as you see it throughout the Bible, describes the number of the earth. Right? You'll find all of a sudden they're talking about the four corners of the earth or the four winds of the earth. Taken pretty obviously from the four points on a compass, north, south, east, and west. You find later on that the number six in the Bible is a number of imperfection. Imperfection, which sort of seems like you're being hard on poor number six, until you realize that the number seven is the number of perfection. Y'all, typically when things have to do with God in the Bible, they use the number seven. Number six is one short of perfection, therefore it's imperfection. The number 10 will get a lot of press in the Bible as being a number of completion, as well as the number 12. The number 12 is a number of fullness, or the total number that ought to be. You'll find the number 40 gets a lot of uh, uh, airtime in the Bible, too, as being the number of generations. Finally, in a couple places, you'll see the number 10,000, which really stands for a number that nobody else can count. It's sort of like when my kids use the word a jillion. I don't know, Dad, there were a jillion there. That's what 10,000 stands for. Now look, we're going to revisit this over and over and over again. But there's something key here. Because when John says that he looked up and saw seven lampstands, that's not a random number, nor is it sort of oddly decorative. You know, seven just works because it's three on each side and one in the middle. It just works. That's not what he's doing. He's saying that seven is a number of fullness or perfection. So do you see what he means? He means that when I looked up and I saw seven lampstands, I was seeing the representative of all churches. Did you catch that? Because there are seven, we understand John to not just be seeing these seven churches, but all churches. Stay tuned. More on that next week. Next, John looks and he says, in the midst of the lampstands, he sees one, and here's the phrase, like a son of man. Now look, this phrase, some of you might be aware, happens to be Jesus' favorite designation for himself in the Gospels. Have you ever noticed this? You know, uh, but when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith in the earth? This is how Jesus talked about himself. He's seeing the risen Jesus. But as it turns out, the phrase Son of Man wasn't Jesus' creation, but it turns out that it comes from Daniel chapter 7. 
If you go back in your Old Testament and you look at Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees the same kind of vision of a powerful and risen Lord, a great figure. And he looks up, he says, he looked to me as one like a son of man. What is John saying? I saw the same vision Daniel saw. And I want you to remember what Daniel saw because it will help you understand what I am trying to tell you by this vision. He was a royal figure. He comes as one like the Son of Man. And then he goes into his description. Curiously enough, there happened to be seven physical descriptions of man. Curious, huh? Number one, he has a long robe with a sash. Y'all, that suggests royalty. The peasant class wore short robes, right? Because they had to work and they didn't want to get their robes dirty. The royal class wore long robes. He's saying that this person that came to him was one of absolute kingliness. Secondly, he had white hair. Proverbs 16.31 says that gray hair is a crown of glory, which means that the figure that he saw was one that represented great wisdom and knowledge and insight. Thirdly, it says that his eyes were blazing. In other words, when you looked into his eyes, you could feel that he wasn't just sort of acknowledging you, but he was looking through you and deep inside of you. Fourthly, he says that his feet were made of a burnished, strong bronze. Bronze is a very solid material. It's very interesting. If you go back to Daniel, Daniel sees a big statue himself. And the statue that he says, he explains on later in his vision, represents the kingdoms of this earth. But in that statue, the feet were made of clay. What was Daniel saying? Daniel was saying, every one of the kingdoms of this earth are going to come down. But John is saying, but there is one figure that's coming like a son of man who will never pass away. That's what he means by the feet of burnished bronze. Number five, his voice has authority. It comes in that when you hear him speak, you want to listen to this man. Number six, he has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, right? What does Paul say the sword of the Spirit is? It's the Word of God. John is not saying that he saw Jesus sort of talking like this because he has a sword in his mouth. That's not it. You can't draw a picture of this. They end up looking ridiculous. Even though I've seen people try to draw Jesus with a big sword coming out of his mouth. That's not the point. This is not representational art. What he's saying is, is that this one who comes to conquer, conquers with the Word of God. He assumes that it's powerful and it's moving. And finally, he comes with a shining face. Calling our attention back to what we studied this time last year in the book of Exodus when Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God and he comes back down and his face shone because he had been with God. But see, what John sees here is one whose face, whose face who is glowing doesn't come from a source outside of himself, but rather emanates from his own being. A massive, unbelievable, earth-shattering vision that John sees. Now we're ready. Now we're ready to ask the question, why does John describe this? What is it that we're supposed to get from this? Two things. Number one is this. Just exactly what John got, which was basically a fainting spell. Look, y'all. This imagery, this symbolism is screaming to you that the one who holds the keys of the universe is a man of glorious and powerful and earth-shattering glory. And whatever you think of this God, He will not be approached in a casual way. I think John is trying to say that when you come and meet this Jesus, you will know because the first experiences that you have will be of you basically coming undone. 
My apologies to those who feel like they sense this when they come into the presence of the Lord. But if you're going to stick strictly to what the Bible says, coming into the presence of the Lord is not the peaceful, easy feeling that we sang about when we were in junior high youth group. My friends, to come into the presence of the Lord is to be undone and to realize that whatever I say about this man, I cannot have a casual relationship with him. I cannot stand on his periphery and watch from the inside out because he is the king of all kings. And he is a figure of royalty that would devastate even the most prideful heart. And John falls as one who is dead. That, I think, is the first impression that John intends us to get. But the second impression he wants us to get comes to us right there in verse 17. Because what does this figure do? Look, y'all, there's a lot of Christianity that is peddled today that assumes that knowing Jesus is only the first impression. That you got to come in and that's what Jesus does because He comes in and He crushes you. And if you step out of line, He'll crush you too. That's not John's vision. John looks and says, this great and glorious and powerful and earth-shattering, mind-bending figure reached down and he touched me on the shoulder. Look, y'all, verse 17 is a tender, it is a tender verse where he raises him up and the first words out of his mouth are what? Fear not. In other words, He is not just a God who comes with a sense of awesome power, but He is a God who comes with deep comfort as well. And both of those things are true at the same time. What is John saying? John is saying, I saw someone who was both absolute authority and perfect mind-blowing royalty, but he was also one who was near to me and kind to me. In other words, he was both transcendent and above all, but also intimate and nearer than all. Do you know what John is saying? John is saying that in the person and in the work of Jesus of Nazareth, you will find your ultimate friend. In all of His glorious perfections of the glory of His hair to His eyes to His shining face and to His royal clothing, you will find what you've been looking for in every other life pursuit. This is what it is. John is assuming that all of your strivings basically meet their telos, their end, their ultimate sense in this man. Every friend that you wish you had, every song you musicians have been trying to write, Every pursuit that you career-driven people have given yourself to. Every relationship that you cried over because it didn't work out. John says culminates in the face and in the work of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, so what are we to learn from this? What are the lessons? What do we walk away with from a vision that's as earth-shattering as that? A couple of things. And I think the first one is simply this. The first idea that John wants us to get is that this Jesus is with His people. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to suffering people and to people who basically don't give a rip. He's saying, look, Jesus is with His people. He is here. And to be honest with you, there is no more prominent theme throughout the entire Bible than that one idea. Honestly, the Emmanuel principle, as the theologians refer to it, says that when God created the world, His ultimate purpose in creating the world was ultimately to be with His people. This, by the way, was what was interrupted in the Garden of Eden. This is what was promised on the flaming Mount Sinai. 
And this is actually what Jesus left us with when He ascended up into heaven. Behold, I am what? With you, even until the end of the age. What we believe is that Jesus Christ comes to His people as the ultimate ministry of presence. And therefore, that accounts for the magic. (laughs) That accounts for the magic that people experience when in Christ they come together. To be honest with you, that some of those people that are on the outside of the faith only know in generalities. A sense of being connected with someone. A sense of being having a place. And only Jesus can provide that. A couple thoughts on that. Because I recognize that you're listening if you ask yourself a question. Because you say, okay, how can Jesus claim to be with us when He is decidedly not with us? Okay? I mean... Acts chapter 1 records it all for us. Jesus left. He stands up and says, Behold, I'm with you. And then poof, he's gone. (laughs) Go figure. What does that mean, Jesus? How can Jesus be with us? And there's two answers I want to give to you tonight to that question. Number one, Jesus is with his people spiritually. Okay? Notice what John says. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day when all of a sudden the vision came to me. And the tragedy of this is, is that most of you in this room think that when I say that, he, he came to him spiritually, that what I mean is some kind of weird, freakish, out-of-body experience trance. You know? His eyes rolled back in his head. Uh, you know? And suddenly he was in the Spirit. And tragically, many of you have begun to think that that's what worship is. You've wrapped yourself up in sort of an, in a highly individualistic experience in worship. And you failed to see the purpose of worship, which is for us to be together with one another and to come with one accord. That's why we do these responsive readings, by the way, at night. But John says, I was in the Spirit. And when I was in the Spirit, you know what I saw? I saw the real world. That's what he's saying. He didn't see an imaginary world. He saw a real world. Okay, I can use this here. Ginger wouldn't let me use this when I was preaching this uh, sermon this summer uh, because of the adults in the room. But I have to tell you that my daughter, Anna Grace, has reached a threshold. A heartbreaking threshold. Because she very recently came up to us and asked us on the event of her latest tooth falling out, Daddy, is the tooth fairy my parents? It's over. Tooth fairy's over. It's all done. Is the tooth fairy our parents? And of course, you know, um, you have to look and say, well, yes, darling, the tooth fairy is your parents, if you mean who's the one who slips the little dollar underneath your pillow, if that's what you mean. And then she followed up with this question. She said, so the tooth fairy isn't real. I hate that I have to, with my children, choose between those two options. I hate the fact that all of a sudden, my children have grown and they're leaving the wonder stage. Remember I was talking about the stage of wonder last week? I hate that we're leaving that. It breaks my heart because it means they're getting older. But the truth of the matter is, is I want to know why she has to grow up with that. This is my complaint. I'm I'm ticked off about this. I'm getting a little upset. For the last 200 years in our culture, sort of American, Western culture, our world has lived with a particular set of eyes, if you will. A particular set of eyes that takes in the world around it and sums it up in primarily scientific terms. But by God's grace, by God's grace, 
in the last 30 or 40 years, more and more people are starting to notice that science alone has failed to account for the most meaningful questions of life. Questions of destiny, questions of meaning, questions of truth, and questions of origin. Science has failed in that pursuit. You know, Richard Dawkins and the God delusion, notwithstanding, they have failed. And that's why they're freaking out writing books about it right now. But what drives me crazy is that when we look at the world and only sense it as being some scientifically demonstrable world, we lose wonder. And since we don't have any wonder, we fail to be moved. We're not blown away by anything anymore. And that's what breaks my heart about this campus. If you were to ask me what, if there was one spiritual ailment that we all suffer from, myself included, is that we look at these spiritual things and we see them and we just kind of go, they just bore us. They lay on the page without moving us. But didn't you love it when the children in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe they begin to question the professor about little Lucy's adventure into the wardrobe. But suddenly in the midst of the conversation with the professor, they begin to find that he is operating on a bit of a different grid than they are, especially as it pertains to these other worlds out there. And the oldest, Peter, looks up and says, But do you really mean, sir, that there could be other worlds? All over the place? Just around the corner like that? Nothing is more probable, the professor said. I wonder what they teach them in these schools today. Do you see what Lewis is saying? Lewis, I think, is saying to us that when John is in the Spirit, he's not in a trance. He's not in a feeling state that's a peaceful, easy feeling. But what he is, is he's saying, I had a whole new world opened up to me, but it's not imaginary. It's not make-believe. It's real. It's the real world. It's not imaginary, but you better believe that your imagination better be intact in order to access it. And unfortunately for all of us, we're so used to explaining things away that we've lost the ability to read these pictures and have them move us because we have no more imagination. God help us. And it's the reason why this book has been unintelligible for the last 200 years of Christian scholarship, I think. We've lost our imagination. Secondly, and I'll finish with this. We access Jesus' presence, living presence with us through the Spirit, but we also access it through the church. Look, what does Jesus have in His hand? Do you notice what He has in His hand? I love this thought. It says there that in His hand are seven stars. And later on, we get explained to us that those seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. Okay, now bear with me for just a second. I've got to do a little work on this one. The word translated angel there, angelos in the Greek, can be translated one of two ways. Most often in the New Testament, the word angelos is translated as messenger. Someone who comes with a message. Someone who comes as a herald. And to be honest with you, you have to choose. What is John seeing? Is John seeing seven stars and seven angels that happen to be the seven angels of each church? Does each church that I go to have its own special angel? That might be what the passage is saying. I'm going to admit to you I'm not certain about this. But I just don't know any other place in the Bible that teaches that. Every church has its own special angel. Well, maybe, but I'm not sure that's it. I choose to say that what he, does, what he means there is not angels in terms of heavenly winged beings, but angels in terms of messengers. 
You know what I think is in Jesus' right hand? All of the leadership of the local churches that are actually worshiping the true Christ. He said, all of the leaders, all of the people that are set over you in the Lord, all of the pastors, all of the deacons, all of the bishops, all of the rectors, all of those people, I have them in my hand. And I have them protected. And if you want to come engage with me, listen, 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 this is the turn right here. If you want to come engage with me, Jesus is saying, you're going to have to do it there. The main way in which people come and have a relationship with me is not inside your individualistic mind practice. But you will find me as you engage with other believers. And I say that in a room that I'm convinced has a handful of people, I'm sure if the statistics are true, who look and say, you have got to be kidding me. I've been to churches less and they are nowhere near that friendly. I was not accepted. I was not brought in. You may be here tonight looking going, am I spoken to me tonight? Sorry, we're trying. And you're looking around saying, this is just one more group. One more group that is treating me in a distant sort of way. And even though the church is failing oftentimes at that task, it doesn't take away from the truth that Jesus said, if you want to find me, you're going to find me among my people. Some of you are searching. You want to know so badly what God has in store for you. And I'm telling you that you will not find Him until you find Him in the curiously described body of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Why do we call the body of Christ, the gathering of believers, if it's not the main way in which God is going to manifest Himself? Do you want to know why Jesus can do that? Because there came a moment in Jesus' life where He hung on a cross, falsely accused. And as He hung there, He began to experience something that no one in this room can describe, and that is absolute alienation from God. He even said it. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see what Jesus was doing? Jesus was at that moment experiencing all of the alienation that we feel in this room and in every church we've ever been to. And He's absorbing it into Himself. And God is punishing Him for our sins, for the things that separate us from one another. And because He punished Him, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Him, who have seen the cross, who have understood the Christian gospel. And if you understand that you begin to take that into your life, you know what it makes you? It makes you a person who can go out and reach out to other people. It makes you someone who can be an agent of Christ. That when you reach out your hand to that mentally handicapped person at the NMRC, that you come as the hand of Christ... That when you bring that meal with Manna Ministries tomorrow afternoon, that you come as the hand of Christ. That when you find that person who's wandering around by themselves at RUF, and you look and say, Hi, I'm so-and-so. Come sit by us. You become the hand of Christ. And so here's the question. Have you gotten that gospel? The, The most unfriendly places are the places where the gospel has not taken root. A places where people understand Jesus is merely dying to be our example and not dying to be our Lord and Savior, to save us from our own alienation. My friends, if there's loneliness in your heart, I have wonderful hope to offer to you tonight. And that is that there is an offer of Jesus being with you and manifesting Himself through new eyes and a new world and through the people of God around you.
I wonder how many would respond to that kind of invitation. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, we pray that You would give us those new eyes, because if they are spiritually discerned, then it has to happen by Your Spirit. We have prayed over and over and over again, Holy Spirit, come among us. We don't see. We walk around day after day and these images are utterly foreign to us. They sound foolish to us. But if they are true, if they are true, it means that you walk among this very room even as we speak. And we have trod this evening on holy ground because we have opened your word and we have invited your spirit. And so, risen, kingly, authoritative Jesus, show yourself to every person in this room tonight, if you are there, and embolden those people who do know you to be the very hand of Christ and to reach out to the person sitting next to them. Would you do that? Change us, we pray, by your Spirit, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.